Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware, brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded Sunday, November 29th, 2020. And a good evening to all of you listeners out there. I'm Greg from Philadelphia, your host for today's show. This evening, we're talking about energy policy and its environmental impact as we switch administrations at the top. New energy and environmental policies and standards will no doubt go into action. And it's also no secret that progressives within the Democratic Party have channeled their support for Joe Biden. And now that Biden has won, these progressives are looking for a bit of a dividend. They're looking for someone to pay the piper. Is Biden truly interested in progressive policies as defined in, say, the New Deal? Or will he hold back and take a more conservative approach? To be sure, there's a lot to discuss here, and I will disclose at this time, we really don't know which direction the winds of change will move. It's a little too early to tell. But in the meantime, we can talk about where we as a nation currently stand, where a lot of progressives want us to stand, and most importantly for this show, (laughs) where the Alliance Party stands. Joining me for this awesome discussion is Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark and our party chair for Missouri. Hello, Dan. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. Yes, it was wonderful. Um, I I spent the spent Thanksgiving with my future uh, family-in-law. So, but I will say out there, I, I hope you listeners had a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. A wonderful and safe Thanksgiving. I hope everyone out there is doing okay. I uh, just found out my cousin, who is a nurse, got COVID recently and is now recovered and back to work. But you know, it, it kind of all happened without me knowing what was going on because they're back in Pennsylvania and I'm not. So it's a bit out of the loop. Yeah, it's pretty severe stuff. I have some relatives too that are going through that and it's um, it's nothing to mess around with. It's, it's serious stuff. But the environment is also serious. Uh, climate change is one of the more pressing issues facing us, certainly if you're following progressive politics. Uh, and it seems like the progressive answer to that challenge that a lot of the um, more left-wing elements of the Democratic Party, at least, have coalesced around is the Green New Deal, which is a pretty uh, sweeping, comprehensive look at climate change that incorporates not just environmental reforms, as, as a lot of people might normally understand them, but also a lot of economic and social justice priorities for the progressives. So, uh, Dan, why don't you take us through a review of House Resolution 109. House Resolution 109, yeah. So it's a fairly simple read, actually. It's uh, less than 14 pages of double-spaced type. It's a, like I say, it's a simple read, and you can probably get through it uh, within about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, And, you know, if you you read this resolution, uh, you may arrive at the same conclusion I did, that it has a lot of ideas that are very very much tethered together. Uh, Paul Krugman, who uh, writes for the New York Times, uh, he described it last April 13th in the New York Times. He described it as a Christmas tree of ideas festooned with lots of writers unrelated to the ostensible purpose in order to win political support. Now, to be fair, Krugman <laughs> actually supports he actually supports the Green New Deal, although he seemed to, very, to be very highly critical of it, as, as am I. Um, first of all, the resolution starts off with a series, uh, as most resolutions do, they start off with a series of whereases. And, um, 
So the whereas, yeah, the, yeah, well, <laughs> it, it kind of gives you the background on these things, right? So, you know, it's as whereas human activity is the dominant cause of observed climate change over the past century, um, and it's causing sea levels to rise. It's uh, it's causing. Um, let me see. Let's go on here. Sorry, I'm turning the page. It makes a little bit of noise in the background there. Uh, global warming is um, is at or above two degrees Celsius. Um, so what they're also anticipating is mass migrations from regions most affected by climate change, uh, more than $500 billion in lost annual economic output. They're predicting serious wildfires, um, a loss of more than 99% of all coral reefs on Earth. I think that's already started. That's heard some very dire news about that. Um, then it goes on to talk about the next whereas is um, that uh, the United States has historically been responsible for a disproportionate amount of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, having uh, emitted 20% of the global greenhouse gas uh, th uh, through 2014. Um, another whereas here says life expectancy is declining while basic needs such as clean air, clean water, healthy food, and adequate health care is, uh, is, is an issue. Uh, then it kind of meanders off, and this is where I was talking about the thing getting festooned with riders. They talk about uh, hourly wages stagnating, um, socioeconomic uh, um, inequalities, uh, the erosion of earnings and bargaining power of the United States of people within the United States, um, and it talks about the wealth gap, the top one percent earners accruing ninety-one percent. And this is where I start to run into problems with the Green New Deal because um, it's it sort of meanders into these other areas that, uh, in the words of Krugman, are ostensible. Uh, it's it kind of uh, unrelated to the ostensible purpose. Um, anyways, let's go through the uh, whereas's where we get to the resolves, and it, it talks then about achieving uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Um, sounds good. Uh, create millions of good high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all people of the United States. Okay, I don't see what that has to do with CO2, but um, let me see. It goes on to talk a whole bunch more um, resolutions here. Uh, talks about when it comes into um, agricultural issues, it talks about supporting family farming. Um, okay, so I have to kind yeah, of... Yeah, also not sure what that would what that would exactly change well it's uh yeah it, it, exactly and it's it's also the family farm is kind of a myth everybody has this image of ma pa kettle sitting out there and they have like you know three acres of corn that they're farming with some ox pulled plow or something it's just not that way anymore big industry is, is rapidly taking over uh small farms uh in fact a lot of the small farms you see out there are what they call hobby farms um so anyways, it talks about, you know, building a, a more sustainable farming and, and land use practices. Um, I think that already exists. It talks about building a more sustainable food system. Good. It seems like there's just an overall theme of, of some really solid environmental concepts like net, near, net zero carbon emissions. That yeah. seems great. Yeah. Uh, but then it's also, you got all this other stuff jammed in there and you would really need a, a comprehensive, the probably the most comprehensive view of politics and economics to agree that these are very closely related. Yeah. 
And I, I kind of had the same reaction you did, Dan, when this first came out. It's like, okay, Green New Deal, cool uh, set of environmental policies. Let me see where that's going. I, I read an article that kind of summarized it. And I was reading along. It's like, all right, that, that seems good. That seems good. It seems good. Bargaining power. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Know, there's, why uh, is the minimum wage in here? <laughs> yeah, collective labor bargaining. Um, it even talks about equal rights. Uh, wage guarantees, um, yeah, indigenous people's rights. I mean, I can certainly get behind all this stuff as individual pieces. I think we, we definitely have issues in these areas. We have de- issues with racism, indigenous people's rights, health care. That's also mentioned in here. That's a big one of that's a, a big goal of mine is to help uh, health care, uh, help take care of people in our country, um, safe and adequate housing. Um, but really, I don't know what it has to do with carbon emissions. <laughs> so that that's uh, it's it's uh, and I tell you what, there's also an elephant in this room right here, and we talked about it a little bit prior to the show here, but I'm going to bring it up again. Um, the elephant in the room is meat consumption, and I'm not saying this just because I became a vegetarian a few years ago. Actually, I started out with veganism, and that was too Spartan of a life for me, so I, I backed off and became vegetarian. Um, but meat consumption is a big issue out there. Meat consumption is partly what's responsible, in fact, to a large degree, is responsible for not only excess CO2 production, but you know, methane is actually a big issue out there. And mm-hmm. farms produce a lot of methane, um, let me see. In he, in a 2006 report, the United Nations said raising animals for food generates more greenhouse gases than all the cars and trucks in the world combined. And it produces wow. things other than CO2. There's methane, um, which I guess is CH4 technically, I think, and uh, nitrous oxide. These, uh, not to mention the fact that a lot of the uh, animal waste. Uh, uh, animal waste is a huge thing. Uh, it says here farmed animals produce about 130 times. I think that's a little bit on the high side. I think it's actually, they, they put a range near 30 to 130 or something like that. But here it says animal farms produce, or farmed animals produce about 130 times as much excrement as the entire human population of the United States. And yet these factory <laughs> farms, these, these concentrated animal feeding operations don't have sewage treatments uh, tr- sewage treatment systems, as all of our cities and towns do. So where does all this slop end up, right? And it pollutes our water, destroys our topsoil, not to mention uh, the animal waste contains a lot of antibiotics and hormones. Um, sure. There's, uh, and we, again, we talked a little bit in the pre- before the show about this, but these concentrated animal feeding operations are allowed to operate almost with impunity in terms of environmental, uh, in terms of environmental issues. Uh, for example, here in Missouri, they just um, a couple of years ago, the uh, legislature um, passed regulations allowing these CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, to basically dump their manure uh, within 300 feet of any drinking water well. So um, I don't think 300 feet, I'm not a geologist, but I don't think 300 feet is enough. But um, anyway, so that's the big elephant in the room that's that's not mentioned, as far as I can tell, inside the uh, inside the Green New Deal. Uh, so I would give I would give an A for effort on the Green New Deal, but um, I think it really needs to be more focused. That's just my opinion. But well, it, it does one nice thing, which is it 
concentrates debate on a specific actual bill, which I do think is a good yeah. good thing because you can talk about the ideas all you want, but if we want to get something done, it's going to require some legislation. So at least it gives people something to to focus on. It gives it a nice tagline. I think the Green New Deal is a fantastic marketing element mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's punchy. It obviously references the actual New Deal, which is a tremendously successful package of, of legislation. So it kind of is borrowing that shine. Uh, and it's, you know, it's like a... A really convenient thing that people can just say and you understand kind of what they're talking about. Yeah. But when you're kind of understanding what they're talking about, there has to be something really good behind it. Yeah. And I think by and I mean you're you're the political expert in this, Dan. You've you've worked with uh with with state legislatures and other other lawmakers. I'm just a I'm just well, a dude. I've talked to them. But to me it seems <laughs> To me, it seems like you're 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 giving your opponents a lot to punch at, and you're also muddying the waters of anyone that wants to support you. Yeah. The more stuff you put in there that doesn't have anything to do with your top. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I actually I, I agree with that. Um, I and I have to go back to my experience as an engineer. I've, I've built, designed, and built a lot of systems out there. And one thing I know about building something is that if you try to do too much, you'll accomplish nothing. And that's my fear of the Green New Deal is that if any one of these uh, festooned parts uh, goes under, and I think that's what you're alluding to, if, if any one of them gets shot down, it'll tend to be like a boat anchor and pull the whole thing down. And that that is unfortunate, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think you kind of saw that with, uh, with the recent presidential campaign. I mean, the Green New Deal was often used as a cudgel by the Republicans against Biden and Harris and other Democrats as like, well, look at this big bloated piece of radical legislation that wants to change all this stuff. It's yeah. it doesn't even have anything to do with the environment. It's it's all these progressive policies and they can just say, oh, Green New Deal and make it a negative thing and just keep hammering them over and over again. And I think the danger of that is when people then go look at, well, what does the Green New Deal actually say? Right. The, the critics of it kind of look right. Yeah, that's why I actually printed this thing out and read it uh, with a fine-tooth comb because it's um, I had to get back to actually what it says. And my and as I'll, I'll, I'll iterate this again. I, I can get behind any one of these um, issues that, that are brought up in the Green New Deal. I just can't, uh, I just can't see tying them all together. And... Um, Speaking of which, you know, the Alliance Party actually has um, its uh, environmental stewardship um, uh, statement that it's right on the website under the allianceparty.com slash green print, all one word, green print. And um, it kind of, I think, mirrors to some degree the Green New Deal, but I don't think it meanders too far into other territories that would cause it to uh, attract a lot of criticism the way the Green New Deal has. Um, they talk about you know some of the some of the goals being um, no new offshore drilling, uh, a ban on new fracking. Oh, oh, I think Joe Biden caught some uh, trouble over that, um, but I think it was it was <laughs> probably a good probably a good statement. I just think it was misunderstood. A just transition from coal. Um, 
I always tell people when they say, well, you want to get off coal? I say, yeah, this is why you can't do it. I says, well, where are we going to be 200 years from now? Are we still going to be burning coal for our energy? Oh, no, we'll all be flying around in our, in our zero energy cars and everything. And, well, okay, we're not going to be burning coal 200 years from now. So when does that process stop? You know, 50 years from now, 20 years from now. So, you know, it's not a sustainable uh, source of energy. So, um, but when you transition from it, you have to transition into something else, I guess. Well, it's not just an energy question. That is also an economic question because there's a whole yeah. coal industry and a lot of states' economies in large part rely on that industry. People work those jobs. Mm-hmm. So you you can turn off all the coal and, and we could just suddenly not use it for anything anywhere. And what are you going to do with all of these people that yeah. you've now taken away their livelihoods and they don't have any other skills. That's, that's the life that they and their family have known for generations possibly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a a difficult thing. I I think Biden in hindsight looks really smart. I was, I, my heart dropped when he said that at the debate, I was like, Oh man, he's going to lose Pennsylvania. Yeah. I just had this feeling because I mean, I come, I come from Pennsylvania. I know Cole is, you know, not in the Philly area, but certainly in the center of the state. It's a huge motivator. Yeah. And to be so against coal and fracking. And I was like, oh, no, could this be the thing that 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 gives Trump the second term? I was so dreading it. But now that he's won it, I think he looks terribly smart because you're absolutely right. We are not going to be using coal. I don't even think oh, 100 years from now, I would be shocked if we're using it for that much. If mm-hmm. anything, yeah. So somebody's got to start that process, and that means a pretty harsh political reality. This industry is going away. What are we going to do? Let's not talk about it anymore. Let's not spend money trying to prop it up artificially. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it for energy? What are we going to do about it for jobs and the economy? And let's, you know, take a responsible approach to that and actually find a solution. Rather than keep kicking the can down the road, which is kind of what uh, what I think the conservative approach on that is, or, or at least the Republican Party approach on that. Let's just pour money into these industries, which are eventually going to dead end. It's just yeah. a matter of time. And it doesn't happen overnight either, right? I mean, it, it any industry... I, I, I maybe with the exception of horse and buggies, I guess, maybe when cars hit the road, you know, the people making horse and buggy, the, the buggies for the horses probably went out of business within a generation. Um, but, you know, a lot of those people transitioned to, you know, bicycle repair or auto repair or something like that. They, they found other things to do, but there was a transitionary period that allowed them to retrain for that. And uh, so coal is not going to disappear overnight. I, th- I still think we're going to be using it 10, 20 years from now. That's a lot of time. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not any time to waste, but it is a lot of time when you think about uh, retraining people, um, perhaps reducing the, the uh, burden of going to college and paying for college, maybe make college a little bit less expensive so that uh, the next generation doesn't have to work in the coal mines, but can you know find other professions going through college, um, or, or you know just basically retraining. I mean, it certainly could do some kind of targeted scholarship programs for those areas or, or yeah. industries. I mean that is, even if you didn't want to do, 
education reform to the point of like a free college, which you have seen some progressives put forth, even if you didn't want to do that, you could still do some targeted relief to those affected by uh, industry displacement generally, whether it's coal or anything else. Yeah. And I feel like that's pretty reasonable and probably not that costly. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, if we don't do it, someone else is going to, right? So uh, whatever energy source is going to be our next energy source, whether it's, you know, nuclear or fusion or something like that, um, at some point um, we're going to switch over to a different source of energy. And if we haven't prepared the people that are, you know, involved in the coal industry, if we haven't prepared them for that, that's when they get stuck out into the, uh, out in the open, out in the cold, I should say, in, in the sense of getting left behind. So we need forward-thinking politicians, obviously, to think about these things. Um, so anyways, um, I, one of the things that, that I think you and I talking a couple of weeks ago that kind of prompted our conversation here was that you are the proud owner, new owner of a new car. Tell us about this car. Yeah, I decided to make the jump to a plug-in electric vehicle. I am the first person in my family to get one, and that includes extended family, so like all the cousins. And I am the talk of the fam about Greg's crazy new car. <laughs> nice. Uh, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, it kind of, the whole process of me getting this car, I, I'm the type that I do tons of research on a big purchase. So over the past couple of weeks, I've become like a in-house expert on electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, electric is good, but how we source that is, mm -hmm. is also important, which kind of comes into this, this coal versus solar versus nuclear versus all these other power options. It's not that simple as everything goes electric, but that is going to be a huge part of it because direct fossil fuel usage is a, a big driver of that industry, and cars are an undeniably huge part of that. Yeah. So, um, for me, it, it came down to, uh, and I'll, um, I'll admit to being a bit shallow on this, Dan, it, mm -hmm. it came down to the look. Mm -hmm. I had to get a car that looked good. <laughs> well, why buy a car if it doesn't look good? I mean, you got you got to feel good in well, it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and yeah, that's right. It's got to drive good. So for that, I went with the BMW i3, which uh, is apparently very controversial in its design. It it looks a little strange compared to other cars, but I, I love it. I think it looks futuristic and modern. And when I'm driving around in it, like I, I don't feel like I'm compromising at all from a gas-powered like Civic or something like that. Mm-hmm. It feels very, uh, very peppy on the road. It, it drives and corners nicely. So I had a really good driving experience with it. And uh, I agonized, like, do I get this? Do I really make the jump to electric? If I do, should I go new or used? Because there are a lot of used ones from around 2017. Hmm. And mm -hmm. ultimately, and this shows our audience the power of these, these government programs, they are really impactful the incentives and tax rebates and stuff for buying a new car and the, the improvements in battery life as well, the technological innovation there. Ultimately, I decided to buy a new car, which is also the first new car, certainly in my direct family, uh, since I've been born, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. At least 30 years, at least 30 years. Uh, and 
you know, the tax rebates, the, um, you know, there, there are rebates, there are tax incentives and there are what I would call non-tax incentives. Like you get to drive in the, uh, you know, the HOV uh, lanes or whatever they call those. The yeah. HOV lanes. That's what they call yeah. them out here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, used to I live didn't in really California. go for that one. It was purely money for me, but there's a lot out there to be like, Hey, if you want to make the jump, please, please make the jump. Here's all this money that, that defrays the cost. Well, speaking of taxes, though, I mean, um, it's I've been five years now since I lived in California, but I know a lot of there was quite a large gas tax there that went into road maintenance. Um, how is the government going to, uh, as everybody switches over to these new, you know, even higher efficiency vehicles like like Priuses or something like that? How is the government going to recoup that gasoline tax? How, are they going to tax you extra to use the roads? How does that work? Or how is that going to work? I think that's one of those speculative questions. Uh, right now, it seems like we're in the phase of we want more people using these cars, so we're actually going to give you tax money to mm-hmm. go get them. But you're right. At some point, there's going to be a critical mass shift where a lot of people have these cars, and they're not going to be bringing in enough money to be giving it out, so they'll stop that. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next step will be, uh, we've tied so much road funding and, and road maintenance and development projects to gasoline. How do we make that switch? And I think the one-to-one answer is put some kind of tax on charging at a charging station. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we necessarily need to go that route or, or if people will decide that that's prudent. Uh, I think other ways you could do it would be some kind of yearly tax on ownership of the vehicle. You could do an at purchase tax of some kind. I think that's probably the least likely one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could do some kind of tax on uh, uh, like battery manufacturers or something along those lines. I think that's also less likely. Yeah. You could see an increase in tolls. That could be a thing. Certainly, but I think that's a politically dangerous one for people because nobody likes those toll roads. Yeah, <laughs> and the more yeah. they go up, the more people grumble. Yeah. Well, they got to come up with something. I mean, the, the tactics. I'm sure there's a lot of smart guys working on how to figure this stuff out. Um, well, I would like to think there's a lot of smart people trying to figure this out at this point. Uh, but I think that is going to be an issue at some point where uh, you know, essentially, if you're driving an electric vehicle. Uh, these days, especially in California there, because like I say, I know the ta- the gas tax is pretty high. Um, you're basically getting a free ride on the road. Um, and I guess it's okay for now, right? But at some point, that's not going to be okay. So it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. I think we are, at least in the next four years, going to be entering a period of more incentives rather than looking at the, the tax balance sheet. It seems like the Biden administration is going to put a lot of attention into electric vehicles. There's been a lot of talk of, of Biden and his association with cars. He's certainly talked up electric vehicles a lot on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are a couple elements where this could come into play. Obviously the most direct one is like some kind of increased adoption subsidy, like purchase this car instead of, I don't know, $7,000 tax off will give you 10000 or 15000 or whatever it'll wind up being. Right. But I, I think at this point, those incentives are looking pretty good. Um, to give you an example, to go from a used model 
to the new model that I got, which is like, I would say about four years newer than the common used model I could have gotten. The battery had improved by almost double. Yeah. And wow. uh, the price with all the, the rebates and, and if you factor in the tax break, only about $10,000 more, maybe even a little bit less. Hmm. Yeah. And for a brand new car with double the range, that's a steal. Yeah. So I actually think the, the big the big government investment opportunity is not necessarily direct rebates, but increases in convenience, specifically charging networks, making sure that there are plenty of charging spots strategically located along American roadways, both major and minor, that electric vehicle users can go to and charge. And that seems to be the big barrier right now, because while it's great in California, I'm talking to my mom in Jersey, and she's like, well, Craig, are you sure that's, you know, what if you get stuck somewhere? Because there is no charging places around here. And my immediate thought was, well, I'm going to Google that later, because I don't think that's true. But sure enough, Dan, I looked it up, and there's like one charging thing within driving distance of my mom's house. And it's literally one plug in the middle of a lot with no signs. It's just like stuck there on a telephone pole in the middle of an empty parking lot. That's the charging station for Southern, for Southern New Jersey, like the Jersey coast area. And then that, all the supporting townships that are next to it. Do you have to bring a soldering iron with you too, in case some of the wires come apart or something and solder it on the spot and put it together? (laughs) If that, if that charging thing doesn't work, you are stuck. Wow. But like, think about that. That also includes Atlantic city. Atlantic hmm. City had a couple of charging stations, but I looked into each one of them. They're either old entries on the map that no longer exist, or they're broken with no plans to repair. Hmm. That's interesting. That's a pretty I, major city. Yeah, I, I work with somebody who actually bought a Tesla a couple of years ago, and I know that Tesla had uh, provided a map. And if I'm not mistaken, they actually put the map into his onboard computer so that he could tell where all the charging stations were. He was able to drive this thing, um, taking on several long-distance trips, but he does have to plan them around where he can find the charging stations. Uh, but that thing gets almost 300 miles on a charge, so um, you know, it's, it's probably um, it, it's probably a little bit better if you have more range than you can find you know, charging stations that are further away. But uh, definitely the government, I think... Uh, um, it's busy trying to make tax incentives for people to purchase these vehicles, but it also has to somehow or another incentivize um, people or incentivize industries to put up more of these charging stations. I think you also touched on real quick when I move on, because it kind of is a nice transition to the technological development side of this battery technology and charging technology. Mm-hmm. There's still room to grow there. Yeah. If we've doubled battery life in the past four years, you know, the more these batteries go in terms of size, that's the more people can drive on them. That's the less frequently they have to charge. Yeah. And if you can improve the charging tech, you can go from what is around 45 minutes to charge my car at a what they call a level two charging station, which is the faster of the versions. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's three levels, excuse me. There's level one, which is kind of the charger that comes with the car. It's You can plug it into any wall outlet. It's pretty slow. I think it would take like 16 hours to charge my car from nothing to full. Wow, yeah. 
there's level two, which is a bit faster. I think that'll charge uh, up to 80% of the battery in like an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, and then it'll take several hours to get the last bits. Hmm. That is a long time compared to a gas station where you're pulling up and it's you're, you're out of there in like five minutes. Yeah. So improvement on charging rate, I think, is also going to be a huge bit or creating it such that you just charge much less frequently so people can go on road trips, which is a huge part of American culture, you know, and not have to worry about it that much. But there's also, uh, as you noted in our, in our notes when we were discussing this, there's alternatives to battery tech, fuel cells, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you wouldn't, in a fuel cell situation, you just pull into a, instead of a regular petrol station, you'd pull into a type of, I guess, station, wouldn't be called petrol, but it'd be a hydrogen station where you basically pump hydrogen into your fuel cell. So you'd be filling it up at that point. Which, you know, that's pretty attractive just for the convenience factor. Um, It's also worth noting for purposes, especially this environmental discussion, that hydrogen itself is clean burning. There's, you're you're basically outputting water vapor. Yeah, yeah. But there's a bit of a kind of a dark side to it as well. Um, it is one of the dirtiest fuels to create. Yeah, yeah. There's hydrogen all around us, but it has to be separated from the oxygen, and that takes lots of energy. So, and that energy comes from perhaps places that aren't so clean, coal-fired again. Or, well, I mean, let me ask you this. Yeah. I mean, when you, even if you have a rechargeable battery, a lithium-ion battery, which I assume you have in your car, um, mm-hmm. it still has to get its energy from somewhere, right? I mean, it's it's you still have coal-fired plants, uh, power plants out there, um, natural gas power plants, which produce a lot of methane, I understand. Yeah, you're you're basically at the whim of the power company of wherever you live. You're you're literally plugging into the grid. So mm-hmm. wherever your local energy is sourced, that's what's going in your car. And that can be depending on where you are, that can be a, a mix of sustainable energies or it could be just as dirty as shoveling coal into a, a like a smokestack situation just having it pump right into the air. Yeah. Yeah, we're back to coal again, aren't we? But I, I do understand that, um, speaking of renewable energies, I was looking up, I did some research uh, a couple of years ago. I actually wrote a, um, article, a magazine article about this. The magazine is no longer being published, but I went back and looked at some of my, my research on solar energy and um, finding out that it continues to march forward. I Right now, I believe we're producing somewhere uh, in the order of... Let me see, somewhere in the order of 2%, 2.3% of total U.S. electricity uh, is, uh, by the year 2017, I believe, was the was provided by solar. So, I mean, it's climb. It's not much now, but it's, it's climbing. Um, and it continues to climb every year. The installed capacity of solar goes up. Um, last year, it was what they call uh, 13 megawatts. Um, I'm sorry, that make 13 gigawatts. Sorry, giga is 1,000 megawatts, and a megawatt is 1,000 kilowatts, and a kilowatt is 1,000 watts. So work out that math later. But uh, the, the point is 13 <laughs> gigawatts is is probably um, is probably somewhere around the order of 20 to 30 coal-fired plants 
to put it in, in coal-fired plant terms. I used to work at a coal-fired plant, so that's wow. how I know all these numbers. But um, that's uh, that's pretty significant, and that's just last year alone. The year before that, it was around uh, 10.7 gigawatts. Uh, the year before that, it was at 11. So total cumulative, we're about at 76 gigawatts total uh, over the U.S. that's being generated by solar power. Now, that, that only works when the sun is up. So, you know, does that mean you have to charge your car when the sun is shining? Or I don't know how that works. But uh, I suspect that if you charge your car at night, you're not going to get much out of the solar power grid. So, um, yeah, some considerations to make. It's interesting, though, because uh, one of the incentives, this is what I would call the non-direct monetary incentives, is a lot of charging companies, at least in California, offer off-peak charging rates. So you can essentially tell your company hey, I've got an electric car. I would like to have my power rate changed from, you know, just a standard, uh, I guess they would charge you per kilowatt hour or whatever, whatever the rate is per amount of energy you use. Rather than have that be standard throughout the day, charge me extra during, you know, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. or, or whatever the time window is. Mm-hmm and then charge me much less overnight. And so what you can do then is with your, your car, plug it in before you go to bed kind of thing. You're charging at a market rate. Oh, okay. So what you could do in the situation you're talking about is maybe have some kind of solar charging for the daytime, and then at nighttime swap over to some sort of sub-market rate from the, char- from the electric company where they're giving you some kind of discount. I think one of the most attractive things about solar is it's the kind of thing you could do yourself. I stayed at a hotel in Colorado. A shout out to the SCP Hotel. If anyone is in Colorado or is planning on visiting, it's a wonderful place to stay. Tremendous staff. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize when I was booking it, but once we got there, not I don't think all of their power comes from their own solar generation, but a huge amount does. And they keep track of it in the lobby of like what all the power is going to and how much they've generated. And it is a staggering amount. And they're just, they're just pulling the sin off the roof basically. <laughs> and they're able to then funnel it into their business and save costs there. So providing, and maybe this is a government thing, like providing uh, a solar setup for everyone to slap on the roofs for those that want it. Oh yeah, might be a terrific way to kind of democratize power, like liter- literal power. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. I well, when I used to live in California, um, a lot of people in my neighborhood were putting solar power up. Uh, in fact, my son, uh, he went to this high school called Pacifica High School, located in Oxnard, California. For those of you who are listening from that area, but anyways, while he was there, um, they installed the school installed solar arrays not only on the roof of the entire high school but also out in the parking lot they built uh, structures to uh, shade the cars you know these big metallic sort of um, shed type structures and they put solar power on top of that as well so i never got the uh, full scoop on how much power they were generating but i thought what a great idea what a what a great investment it, it makes me really want to look into how much those panels cost and you know is it is it feasible to, to like get into that? Because I do think it's really cool. Yeah. And that, that kind of plays all into the policies. Like, are we going to subsidize electric cars? Are we going to subsidize home solar? 
what what can the government do in terms of a set of policies, whether that's uh, regulatory, making things easier and more convenient, or directly economic, some kind of subsidy or tax incentive, yeah. uh, or uh, maybe it's uh, even more indirect and it's that it's putting money into research and development, which could make things bigger, better, faster, cheaper, et cetera. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a couple of ways we could go about it. And I, I guess the question is, ultimately, how is Biden going to go about it? I mean, he's got this progressive base that seems very insistent on him acknowledging the fact that, you know, they were a big portion of his support that got him over the line and they want to see some change on things that are important to them and the environment and energy policy is one of those things yeah so what is he going to do uh, i guess and what i'm asking you really is is what do you think are the most realistic outcomes here what are say the top two or three things you're looking at from the biden administration whether he will or won't do them you think these will be the big decision points I think it depends upon how risk averse he is. Um, I think fresh on his mind is this uh, Solyndra uh, situation that took place. I think it was back in 2010. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, uh, but it was a um, solar panel startup called Solyndra that was that the government invested in to the tune of I don't remember what it was. Was it a half a billion dollars? Maybe you need to correct me on that one, but. Um, it, it turned out to be a big that's, flop. I yeah. don't remember the number, but it was significant. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if that's gonna if that's going to uh, perhaps hamstring him, make him risk averse to that sort of thing. On the other hand, I think that it's good in a sense that he is being pushed by the uh, progressive wing of the uh, Democratic Party, and I didn't mean to dump too much. Uh, too much dirt on them over this uh, over this uh, this no green deal thing. Uh, it's a good start, like I said, but um, I think that that, that sort of mentality is going to perhaps push him in that direction. But he's going to be very careful because uh, if he starts leaving, or at least gives the impression he's going to start leaving people behind, uh, particularly we talked about the coal industry earlier, or for fracking or something like that. If he gives the impression that he will create a whole new class of people that are going to be left behind. Um, whether or not that's true, I think it's not going to be true, but it's, you know, perception is everything. So if he gets, if that perception takes root, he's going to be even more risk averse. So I don't know. It just depends upon how risk averse he is and how, um, how progressive he feels and how conservative he feels. Um, I can't really make any predictions in that area. I hope he goes. I hope he goes forward. I hope he does actually uh, do a lot of what the New Green Deal asks for in terms of investing in some of these new uh, sources of energy and continuing to invest in them. Yeah, I, I would hope that we start investing more in this stuff. And I, it really just depends upon, you know, where the Republican Party uh, sets their um, perception and where the Democratic Party is able to respond to that and or vice versa. Yeah, I, I doubt he's going to have willing partners on the Republican side for most of what the Green New Deal contains, but there might be enough support for uh, more meat and potatoes stuff. Like, for instance, one, one politically expedient thing about, say, charging networks is it gives senators opportunities to give local businesses grants for their state. Mm -hmm. Senators love that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's a rule. 
Well, they got to bring the so pork home. He might yeah. be able to do some kind of deal there uh, where he's giving state grants, state money to invest in small businesses that could create some jobs and make senators look good for bringing home more bacon from the federal government. Yeah. Well, it depends on how they play the political game, I suppose, and how all that shakes out. And really, to a certain degree, it depends upon how much uh, Congress is willing to, uh oh, here comes that word, compromise becomes kind of oh, a dirty no. word these days. But yeah, oh, no, we can't do that. But if they start compromising and talking about these issues a little bit more, um, I think it could be a very, very good thing. Um, I just don't know. It's just it's hard for me to look into the crystal ball. I think 2020 ruined ruined me for any sort of making making any sort of political predictions because I was completely wrong about how people's response to COVID. I was completely wrong about <laughs> people's response to Trump, you know. So I'm I'm not going to stick my neck out anymore. <laughs> well, we will say this as, as a closing thought on well one of the two closing thoughts we have here. The answer may not be political in the sense of legislation necessarily. There's also the issue of you know Biden's relationship with auto manufacturers. If you think about saving the auto industry, that was a big hallmark of mm -hmm. the Obama Biden administration. There may be some favors owed or at least good relationships and goodwill built. Maybe if Congress won't do anything, this is something that the, the president can kind of use the bully pulpit and use his phone for to kind of work these auto manufacturers into doing some things on their own, some kind of self-regulation or technology investment programs. Of, of, so like a more a, a, a private side stuff as opposed to public money. Yeah. I didn't think about Possible. that. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But Fourth I think you also hit on another great point, which is COVID is kind of the big priority. I think, and I, and I agree, that no matter how dire the environment might be in the next 25 years, COVID is dire right now and has been horribly mismanaged. Yeah. So I think that Biden's top priority ought to and rightly should be uh, getting that under control, which is probably going to dominate his executive and legislative priorities for the first couple months of his term. Yeah. I would assume. I would assume so too. And and what another elephant in the room nobody is talking about yet is the debt that we um, accumulated over COVID. It was already pretty mm -hmm. bad, especially with the tax cuts of 2017. Uh, leaving a big deficit, um, we just blew past that deficit. We're way beyond 100% GDP on our debt at this point. So our, our debt to GDP ratio is beyond 100% at this point. And that was not predicted to happen for several more years, if at all. Um, but uh, because of COVID, we just blew past that. And, and it's for a good reason. You know, we needed to keep people employed or keep them at least solvent to some degree. Sure. But there is a huge amount of... Um, um, I don't know, huge amount of debt to worry about in this case here. So I, I, I wonder how much uh, how much maneuvering room uh, this new administration is going to have. Yeah, I, I think the Republicans will rediscover their concern for our debt very soon, if they haven't already. <laughs> uh, Nobody's going to believe <laughs> but, me. But, you know, <laughs> it didn't seem like the debt was a problem a couple of years back. So hopefully he's got some maneuvering room. Not that I think that right. we shouldn't be more fiscally responsible. I do, but... This is kind of a national crisis, so if you were ever to put fiscal responsibility aside for some sort of overarching purpose, this is surely 
one of the more worthy purposes you could have. Yeah. Well, the the, the thing about um, it, I've interviewed in, in the past, I've interviewed people from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and one of the things I learned was you it, when you when you deal with debt, you are basically uh, trying to cut off the peaks to fill in the valley, right? So when times are good, when the economy is good, you pay down that debt um, because unpredictable things like COVID will happen. And it's if it wasn't COVID, it would be something else, right? So um, we the, the problem is we had not built any margin. We had not built up any sort of, um, yeah, any, yeah, I should say margin, financial margin to handle this thing. So we were on top of a, of a huge amount of debt that we ran up. And it's been increasing ever since the, it was somewhat uh, controllable around 1980. And ever since then, it's been getting worse. So um, we didn't have any any maneuvering room and it's even less now. So I hope that some of these, uh, some of these projects we talk about today, um, especially some of the projects that are, you know, related to the Green New Deal, um, hope we have some maneuvering room for them. I just, um, I don't know how we're gonna do it, honestly. I just don't know how we're going to do it, but uh, I hope it can be done. I think it can, and you know, maybe some of these answers are ways to help us lower that debt. I definitely think clean energy can be a cost savings. It doesn't have to always be a straight cost. Solar, for instance, an area where we could invest and wind up saving money as a nation down the line. Yeah, well, not only saving but, money, uh, but it's a, it's a whole new industry to explore. And if we take a world mm-hmm. leadership position on it, um, yeah, it could be a, um, a win for us. Absolutely. All right. We've been talking about energy policy. Thank you for tuning into the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. You can find us on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party perspective. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page, at Alliance on Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in another show, please drop us an email at podcast at com. All content for this podcast is copyright of the Alliance Party. The views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. And this podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independence from Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our election officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents, provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party, and if you'd like to join the party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about. Get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or a blog to run for office. Heck, send us a show lead. (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. I'm Greg from Philadelphia, your host for this evening's edition. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, myself and Dan, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead. Stay safe out there, and we hope you drop in for our next show.